You're listening to the Scottsdale Podcast, which features our Sunday sermons. If you would like to learn more about what God is doing in the life of Scottsdale Baptist Church, visit our website at scottsdale.org. Enjoy and be challenged by the word of the Lord. Good morning and welcome to Scottsdale Baptist Church. My name is Jeff Poteet and I get to serve here on staff as one of the pastors. And whether you're with us here live, whether you're watching us in the Cross Point Center, we're so glad that you've chosen to join with us today uh, to worship our great God and Savior together as we've been going through this study in 1 Timothy called For the Church. Now, uh, by way of reminder, there is something happening exciting for our church, for this church family uh, tonight, as we're going to be gathering back together here. You heard Stephanie uh, talk about it. We're going to be gathering here at six o'clock for a night of worship. We want to encourage you to be a part of this. It's going to be something that you don't want to miss. We're going to gather together. We're going to worship. We're going to sing. We're going to hear scripture. Uh, We're going to partake of the Lord's Supper together. It's just going to be a great time uh, that you're not going to want to miss. Also for our church, uh, on Tuesday nights through the month of October, just as a reminder, at 6.30, we meet here in the worship center for a time of corporate prayer. Uh, The last two weeks have just been sweet times of prayer for us as we've gathered together uh, to seek God together in prayer. So I encourage you, if you've not been there yet, uh, there's still time. We have a couple of more Tuesday nights in October, so we'd love for you to join with us in that. Now, you know, growing up or living here on the coast, there's something that I can rarely go a day without seeing. Now, whether it's driving home from work or whether it's driving around town or uh, whether it's, you know, going towards the beach, there's one thing that I, I rarely go a day without seeing. And that thing is a boat. How many of you guys have a boat? A few of you have boats. Now, there are, there are big boats and there are little boats. And before you think about this, I'm not going to start into like a Dr. Seuss rhyme here uh, with boats. But some of your boats are at home. You keep them at home. Some of you keep your boats at a dry storage place at like a boat lot. And for some of you, if you're honest with yourself, you just keep your boat in the shop all the time. <laughs> some of you keep them in, the, in the, the stacks, right? The dry storage stacks. But then there's some of you uh, that keep your boats in the marina. Now, whenever a storm comes, uh, for those who have a boat in the marina, there are really two options for you, aren't there? You either get your boat out of the marina, you take it out and you take it home or take it somewhere else, or you take time, you go down and you secure the lines just a little bit tighter to the dock to make sure that your boat is secure, whether the storm is going to be a big storm like a hurricane or whether it's going to be a small storm or just a uh, disturbance in, in in the waterway. You go and you make sure that that line is secure. Now, this is kind of what we did whenever I was growing up. We lived on a lake, so the storms weren't nearly as, as devastating as a hurricane or as, as big as those kinds of storms. But any time that there was a storm, the system was still the same. The system was the same. We went to the dock. We just went down to, uh, to the dock, and we made sure that the lines were tighter. We, we, we pulled them a little bit tighter close to the, to the dock so that the boat wouldn't float away in the event of the, the winds and the waves kicking up and trying to, to draw it away. The reason we do this is so that, the, so that the, the, the boat stays secure in the marina, so that no matter what the wind and the waves do, no matter what the current pulls or way, the way that the, the storm may move, that the boat would be secure. Now imagine for a moment, if in that same marina, the harbor master decided to go down to the docks one day and start systematically untying all the boats that were secure in the marina. You can imagine that no matter whether the storm was a big storm or whether there was literally no storm, those boats would be left to the tossing and the turning of the waves. They could be carried away very easily by the wind or pulled down river by even the weakest current. And in reality, no matter how how severe the conditions were around it. The reason that that boat would be destroyed isn't just because of the things going on around it, but because somebody willfully untied it from a safe and secure harbor. As we look in God's word today, and as we think about what Paul is writing to Timothy, he is warning Timothy that the same exists in the life of the church. Now we are We are sure that there are things, that there are forces that are outside of the church that are seeking to draw 
the people of God away, like the winds and the waves that are seeking to draw the church away from Christ. We also know that even more devastating are dangers that are inside the church, where people are coming in, trying to untie, unsecure the people of God from the safe harbor of the gospel, like that harbor master who is willingly unhooking the church, seeking to destroy her from the inside. False teachers who have come in under the guise of Christianity and are trying to untie the secure ropes of the gospel for some other truth that they think may be helpful for the church. So how does the church guard against such drifting? How does the church guard against such danger? Danger from outside, but also danger from within. Paul tells us in 1 Timothy over and over again, particularly in, verse, in chapter three and, for, and chapter four, that the way in which the church guards against such drifting is really in a very simple statement, that the church is to pursue gospel-centered godliness. That the church is to pursue gospel-centered godliness. It's the only antidote for drifting. It's the only sure way that the church can remain secure. It's the only way that individual believers can remain secure. And it's the only way that we, as brothers and sisters in Christ and as leaders in the life of the church, can help one another be secure all the way to the end. So if you would go ahead and open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. I will be in 1 Timothy, into 1 Timothy chapter 3 and also chapter 4. And here we see a transitional statement that Paul gives to Timothy. As Paul concludes his section on church leadership in general, we've talked about that the last couple of weeks, that is the elders and the deacons in the life of the church, it serves as a landing point for, for Paul. But then as he launches into specifics to Timothy himself as the, the leader of the church in Ephesus, it, it serves as a launching point for him and for us today. So as we spend our time together studying God's word, we're gonna pray and then we'll jump into the text together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have given us the direction by which we can remain secure in Christ and also by which we can encourage others in their walk with Christ. We pray that you would guard our hearts and our minds today as we study your word. It's in Christ's name that we pray, amen. The first truth that we see in this text as it relates to pursuing gospel-centered godliness is this. When we pursue gospel-centered godliness, the first thing that we must do is we must discern what is at stake in the life of the church. What is at stake for and in the church? Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. He says this, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. The question that comes to us is, why does it matter how we as the church live together? It probably goes without saying, as we've studied the life of Paul in other contexts, that Paul is adamantly for the church. His life after conversion, after he became a Christian, was spent for the church. He taught the church. He led the church. He defended the church against danger. He established leaders for the church. Paul was for the church. But these verses help us to see that Paul wasn't just concerned about the church because he wanted it to be a successful civic organization, uh, a successful organization for philanthropy or for general good will. He doesn't want the church to just be a cool club that's a, that allows for inclusion and for belonging, like your local country club or the Kiwanis Club or the Rotary Club or any other club that we might be a part of. No, Paul is telling Timothy that there is something greater at stake when it comes to the church. He knows that what happens here is more significant than any other organization in all of the world. He knows that this gathering of people, this body of people hasn't been established by people. It's been established by God. And because it's established by God, God has designed it with a particular purpose in this world. 
It is to, it is to serve as a guardian of the truth. It is to be a guardian of the truth of God. So what is at stake in the life of the church is nothing less than truth. It is nothing less than truth. The picture that Paul helps paint for us is how we can understand this picture. When he talks about the words, using the words pillar and buttress of the truth, Paul wants to remind Timothy and by extension us that as the church, we are to hold the truth high. Now, I'm not talking about like the game where you do this for your kids, right? You hold a little a toy and they jump and you pick it up a little higher. He's not talking about trying to trick people. He's holding up, talking about holding it high so that the world can see truth. So that whenever the world observes the church, the world, the world sees a faithful proclamation of truth. But not only are we to hold it high for people to see, we are to hold it firm. We are to hold the truth firm, like a foundation or a buttress that guards a building, that keeps it from falling, that keeps it secure. We are to hold the truth high and we are to hold the truth firm to protect it from distortions or from distractions or from departures from the word which God has given us. John Stott, the famous uh, famous pastor wrote in his commentary on first Timothy and Titus, this statement. He said, the church depends on the truth for its existence, but the truth depends on the church for its defense and proclamation. The truth depends on the church for its faithful defense and its proclamation. We have a responsibility to guard the truth by holding it high and proclaiming it and to holding it firm by defending it. While we've entitled this series for the church, which helps us to see what God's desire is for us as we live in community as a faith family. In this passage, God is also telling us that the church is for the world. That as we gather here together, there is, a, there is something more than just gathering that is happening. It is a proclamation to a watching world of the grace of God the truth of God about redemption and restoration. What happens here, Paul wants to remind Timothy and us, matters. God did not entrust this responsibility to any government organization. He did not trust this responsibility to the school system or the educational system. He entrusted it to the church. And he intends for us as brothers and sisters in Christ to faithfully live this out each and every day. If the church is to be the place where the truth triumphs, then certainly it must be the place where truth is known. This we see, the next, the next truth that we see from this passage. As we pursue gospel-centered godliness, we must declare a consistent message. As the church, we must declare a consistent message. Notice what Paul writes in verse 16. He says, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world and taken up in glory. Paul tells us that the mystery of godliness is the message of Jesus Christ, who he is and what he has done. And if you want to know what it means to live a godly life or a, a gospel-centered life, your beginning point, your middle point, and your ending point is the gospel of Jesus. The gospel is the filter through which all of life is seen. And in these six stanzas, Paul reiterates to Timothy, he reiterates to him the non-negotiable nature of being gospel-centered. The church must cling to the gospel with all that she has. Otherwise, she will be easily distracted and drawn away to some other truth. There is no other truth in all the universe that rivals this. And as we grasp this truth, as we discover this truth, it becomes the never ending source by which we live our lives. And in a world that is seeking to draw you away, that is seeking to draw us away with circumstances that are causing us to wonder, have we attached ourselves to the right thing? Paul describes that this is an immeasurably great truth. Christ is immeasurably great. He is supreme over all systems of the world. He is supreme over the universe. He's incomparable. 
in his person and his work. Notice the ways that he talks about this. He was manifested in the flesh, though he existed from eternity past with the Father. God became a man. That truth in itself is beyond great. There is no other world religion in the world that subscribes that God, the infinite creator of the universe, would humble himself to the point of becoming a man. Not only that, he is vindicated by the spirit. Not only become a man, he lived a perfect life. He died in the place of sinners. He rose from the dead, victorious over sin and death, proving that God the Father had ruled on his life acceptable, not guilty. He is not a sinner. He did not deserve to die, but I accept his death in place of those who do deserve to die. He is vindicated in his holiness and in his perfection. He is seen by the angels. Not only do we see him here in this world, he is adored by the heavenly beings that serve as messengers for God. It may be referring to him being seen on the day of resurrection, but it also may be talking about him being seen as he ascended to glory. The reality is that the angels behold his glory. He is incomparable. He is proclaimed among the nations. The news of his word has gone out through the world. He is not only preached in the nations, he believed on by every nation and language and tribe and tongue across the world for generation upon generation. And he is taken up in glory. He was glorified. He ascended back to the father from which he will return one day. This is literally the greatest truth in all the world. And when you think about the reality that there is nobody in all the universe to who this much attention is given, the message of the gospel is incomparably great. It is incomparably sufficient for us. It is incomparably sufficient for all people. And if we are to pursue gospel-centered godliness, it must be just that, gospel-centered. It must be flowing from the gospel. It must rely on the gospel. It must rejoice in the gospel. It must be founded in the gospel. But in the church in Ephesus and in our churches all too often, there are people who want something different, who want something more. And whenever you read about Jesus, the thing is you you look and you say, really? You want something more than that? You think that there is something greater than what Christ has done? The revelation of Jesus is beyond comprehension. But here's the thing. I found it in my life, and I'm sure you would probably say that you've seen it in your life as well. Whenever we minimize the greatness of God in Christ Jesus, when we minimize the work that he has done, it is so easy for us to look for substitutes. Whenever we minimize who he is and what he's done, whenever we take our eyes off of Christ, it becomes so easy to be drawn away to something that's far lesser, that's nowhere near as powerful, that is nowhere near as sufficient or satisfying. We are drawn away to substitutes. It's important that we start here because throughout history and even today, there are people and will continue to be people who seek to cut the church loose from this secure foundation. They will seek to attach it to something that is shifting and failing, who will minimize Jesus for some lesser greatness. And all too often, the place where these notions start isn't outside the church. It's not where they find their footing. Oftentimes they happen within the church. And the most sobering thing that Paul reminds Timothy of and us is that the biggest danger won't always come from outside, but it will oftentimes come from within. And those teachings will begin to infest and infect the church as people look for something greater than Jesus. Paul reminds the Ephesians of this in Acts chapter 20, verses 29 and 30, where he says this, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things 
to draw away the disciples after them. So not only must we hold fast to declaring a consistent message, which is Christ and Christ alone, we have to identify the rivals to that message. We have to identify the rivals to Christ's rightful rule over our own lives. To be for the church truly, we must carefully expose those things which seek to ruin her witness in the world and which seek to draw her away to some lesser greatness. Which leads us to our third truth today. Pursuing gospel-centered godliness leads us to define the danger of drifting. We have to define the danger of drifting. What does it look like? Who are these people that we must watch out for? Paul writes in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. We see in this, the Holy Spirit of God reveals through Paul that in later times, and that's really the time between Christ ascended to heaven and the time that he returns, there will be people that will depart from the faith. Now you listen to that and you're like, oh wow, is he saying that there are people that will lose their salvation? Like I thought that we were secure in Christ. Paul's not talking about people that are going to lose their salvation. He's talking about the fact that there are people in the church who have made a mere profession of faith to some Christian doctrines that they've ascribed to those things only to at a later time reject them for some other truth, for some other, other place that they've tried to find their hope, which helps us to see and for Paul to describe that they were never actually believers in the first place. Their lives bear out the fact that they were never actually new creations in Christ. And for us, there is a real and present danger for us, even here today, because there are people out there today who are even under the guise of Christianity, intentionally or unintentionally attempting to lure you away from the message of the gospel. They are seeking to draw you away from pursuing a gospel-centered godliness. Paul says that these are demonic and deceitful teachings proclaimed by liars whose consciences have become so numb that they're not even able to feel. They can't distinguish right from wrong. Now, when we read this, you might begin to think this is gonna be easy. It's gonna be really easy to spot demonic teachings. I mean, likely they're gonna show up at our Bible study. They're gonna break out their Ouija boards. They're gonna start lighting candles and doing some incense. And they're gonna start doing some kind of a demonic incantation to invite demons into our meeting. If only it were that simple to distinguish. If only the false teachers would come in and say, hey guys, my name's Bill. Hey Bill, how are you? Doing great. Just wanted you to know that I'm a false teacher. My goal in this lesson is to draw you away from Jesus. Like that's what I'm here to do. Just wanted to put my expectations on the table. I want you to come and follow me. It would be really simple to spot that, wouldn't it? But the enemy's schemes are far more subtle and devious than that. These people are like actors who are in a play. People whose words sound compelling, whose words sound enticing. And you begin to think, you know, that, that sounds like it could be true. What they're saying isn't really that far off from Christian truth. Actually, it sounds relatively close. Notice what they teach in verse three. These are people who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Whenever we think of people with seared consciences, as he's talked about, who are liars, oftentimes we think about people that, that don't know, uh, they try to pursue, per, um, teach us that things that are wrong are right. But there's also a flip side to that when we think about somebody with a seared conscience. Seared consciences don't only mean that people try to convince us that things which we know are wrong are right. Seared consciences can be people that try to teach us that things that are truly right and good are wrong. We see this in Isaiah chapter five, where Isaiah says this, woe to those who call evil good and good evil. 
We see this in our lives where people may try to tell us that there's something that we know that God has designed for good. They call it evil. So what these teachers are promoting isn't ungodliness. It's something called asceticism. Asceticism. You might think that's a big word. Don't know what that means. It's not anesthetism. It's not putting people to sleep. It's not aesthetics, making people prettier. It's ascetics, which is the denial of God-given gifts in creation for some religious purpose. And the church at Ephesus isn't the only church that Paul is having to address this in. He has to address it to the church at Colossae as well. In Colossians chapter two, we we read this from Paul writing to the church. If with Christ you have died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they're of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Paul's telling us that we need something deeper than adherence to religious activities to change us. There's something deeper that has to happen in our lives. And maybe you're here and this sounds unfamiliar to you. Maybe you would say, this is a little different to me, but I just wanna bring you in on a little bit of information. There are really three ways for people to live in this world. Oftentimes we just think of two ways, religious and irreligious. But the gospel is actually a third way. It's it's called becoming a new creation in Christ. It's being transformed and changed because the reality is you can be a irreligious lost person. You can be a religious lost person. Either way, if, if Christ is not the foundation, then you are still walking at enmity with God. You can pursue something like asceticism or you can take part in religious activities, but never have experienced the new life that is found in Christ. And what Paul is reminding us of as he points us back to being gospel-centered people, is that Christ himself is calling us and inviting us not to trust in our works, not to trust in our abilities or in our religious activities, but to trust in his finished work and his finished work alone. That is the only place where we can find rest. For those that have been in church for some time, I'd venture to say that this deception may be the one that we fall most for. I'd say that statistics bear this out. I read a recent article that said that 30% of senior pastors in America have said that they believe someone who does good works and is a generally a good person will earn their way into heaven. 30% of senior pastors in America believe that you can work your way to God. I'd also say that this probably bears itself out in our personal evangelism. Think about it just for a minute. When you close your eyes and think about the person that you would most likely share the gospel with or that most likely needs the gospel, is the first person that comes to mind a moral businessman who is an atheist or a homeless drug addict? Oftentimes, we think And even it bears itself out in our lives. We are more willing to share the gospel with somebody who is immoral and is addicted to drugs or substances than to somebody we know that says they don't believe in God, but lives a moral life. For many of us, the danger of drifting is not departure towards ungodliness, but it's towards a substitute godliness. It's a godliness that rejects redemption that rejects grace, that ultimately rejects Jesus and seeks to establish a system that relies on our own works, our own abilities, our own ingenuity to get us to God. And this system spreads through the church. The challenge is that it sounds halfway legit. I mean, if you think about it, God doesn't want us to sin. So it it can sound appealing to us. I read in a a, a book, a, a story, from a man named uh, Michael Horton. It's in a book called Christless Christianity. If you've read it, you know it's a great book. He gives an illustration from a, a pastor, a former pastor named Donald Gray Barnhouse, in which he asks the question, 
what would it really look like if Satan was in charge of a city? Barnhouse speculated that if Satan really took over Philadelphia, all the bars would be closed. Pornography would be banished. Pristine streets would be filled with tidy pedestrians who smiled at each other all the time. There would be no swearing. The children would say, yes, sir, and no, ma'am. And the churches could be filled every single Sunday, but there would be no Christ preached. See, in a city that's equally as destructive as the one that leads people to wickedness and a system that leads people towards immorality is one that deceives people into thinking that their good works will make it to God. That we can be good enough by our own self-effort and determination, our own morality and discipline for God to be happy with us. Brothers and sisters, that is the, that is the city that the enemy is seeking to draw you to. One that is built on your works and not Jesus's. One that seeks to burden you, not be a blessing to you. One that seeks to put you into bondage and not leave, leave you leave, living a life of joy-filled satisfaction. That's the city that he wants to woo you to. He wants you to look at your life and say, I think I'm good enough. I think I've done enough good stuff. I think God will be happy with me. You see, Satan is not bothered by our behavioral improvement plans. He's really bothered by gospel transformation plans. He's only bothered when people see their bankruptcy of their own morality, when they see the hopelessness that they have apart from Jesus and they turn to Christ for the forgiveness of their sins and a right standing with God and are then transformed from the inside out in such a way that all the glory goes to God and it doesn't reflect back on their ability, but on God's ability. It is a reflection of his grace and our obedience flows from our love for him, not our desire to be accepted. Now, how might you know if you are in this danger today? I like to think of questions to ask myself as I'm walking through these. What might be some ways in which I would know if I was in danger of this, maybe even today? Two questions for you. First, does your life reflect an attitude of self-righteousness? Does your life reflect an attitude of self-righteousness? Second, does your life reflect a disposition of joylessness? These two questions help us to see that one, if we live in a life of self-righteousness, do we regularly look down on other people with contempt because they're sinners? Do we look at them and we think to ourselves, I would never, I would never do what they do. Or do you look at people and say, man, it's only, it's only by the grace of God that that's not me. It's only by God's grace that I'm not in the same place or worse? Do you feel morally superior to those that you interact with? Does your life reflect a disposition of joylessness? Living a life that seeks to earn God's favor will always lead to joylessness because you'll always ask the question, have I done enough today? Have I done enough this week? Have I done enough this month or this year or this decade? Have I done enough for God to be happy with me rather than resting in the finished work of Jesus? There's never rest in self-effort to attain a right standing with God. Pursuing gospel-centered godliness addresses both of these for us. We, who, we are who we are because of Christ. We are who we are because of what Christ has done for us and in us. Apart from grace, we could and likely would be where others are. So the gospel brings deep humility in our lives so that we live in gratitude and in humility and in worship of God's grace and kindness towards us. And it also frees us from the condemnation that comes with trying to work our way to God so that we can live in joyful reception of his unmerited favor for us in Christ. Whenever we think about the mystery of Christ, missing the mystery leads us to a manufactured godliness and not to maturity. It leads us to a godliness that ultimately destroys those who embrace it, who lead them away from the true and safe harbor of the gospel. But Paul wants something different for Timothy. He wants something different for us than this kind of lifeless, joyless, self-righteous kind of life that ultimately destroys. He warns us of the emptiness of pursuing a substitute godliness. Now he's not going to tell us to become ungodly. 
He's not going to point us in the other direction. No, he's going to bring us back to the center. He is going to bring us back to our calling as people that are called to pursue gospel-centered godliness. Not only is it tenaciously gospel-centered, that it is founded upon the finished work of Christ, gospel-centered godliness must work itself out in our lives. It must, it must have an effect on who we are and what we do. And Paul helps Timothy to see that. He helps us to see that pursuing gospel-centered godliness must be developed personally. It must be developed personally. So how is it that we, how is it that we grow in gospel-centered godliness? How is it that we develop this in our lives? Now, the two words that I'm about to share with you, many of you, most of you may not wanna hear. There are two words for us to develop gospel-centered godliness. And those two words are these, diet and discipline. Two words that may be considered foul language in your home, I don't know. But they are words we see in our text, or at least the ideas, the diet. What, is, are, you, what are you taking in? What are you taking in in your life? And then discipline. How are you working out? These two things we see in 1 Timothy chapter 4, as the Apostle Paul writes to Timothy, verses 6 and 7. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. See, pursuing Christ-centered godliness, as we consider this, pursuing gospel-centered godliness is built on our diet and on discipline. I want you to see this as it relates to our diet, our diet. What is our diet to be in relation to gospel-centered godliness? Our diet is to be the word of God. The diet is to be the word of God. Notice in, uh, in, this, in verse six, this is what Paul writes. Being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. The word that Paul uses in verse six that we have translated trained can also be translated nourished. Paul wants Timothy to be nourished to be filled, to be strengthened, to be satisfied in the continual reading, studying, meditating upon the word of God. He says God's word is the necessary fuel for your life. It is a diet that, that may be like chicken and vegetables. It may not be always exciting, but we know that it's going to sustain us. And the fact that it is in the present tense reminds us that it isn't just something that Paul says, hey, Timothy, a long time ago, you read the Bible. That's great. That's gonna sustain you forever. He says, no, this is an ongoing, active participation in being nourished over and over and over in the word of God. It must become the regular habit of our lives. He contrasts this true nourishment with the spiritual junk food of the day. In verse seven, he says this, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Paul is drawing our attention to the fact that we are all too often tempted to rely on spiritual junk food to try and get by, only to get ourselves in a bind and find ourselves feeling sluggish when it comes to godliness. Irreverent silly myths are like spiritual junk food. And today, whether it's the newest sensational teaching out there, whether it's uh, an obscure technical theological point, or whether it's the, the newest social issue of the day, the newest conspiracy theory related to the end times, Paul's saying they may be attractive, they may be tasty, but ultimately they're going to leave you empty. You know, I, I love sweets, any kind of sweets, really. It could be a cake, it could be a pie, it could be a candy bar. I mean, chances are, if you name it, I'd try it. But just imagine if that's all I ate. Like if that's what my diet consisted of, maybe for the first day, I'd be okay. Maybe for the first week, maybe, maybe. But after a while, I'm gonna be sluggish. 
My body's going to feel bad. I'm going to be a pretty unsightly individual. My teeth are probably going to off. Like, I'm not going to, it's not going to be a pretty picture. How often do we embrace that for our spiritual lives? That which we would never embrace for our physical lives, we welcome for our spiritual lives. When our diet spiritually consists of the newest, most sensational, most obscure teaching out there, we try to live on spiritual junk food. Now, I'm not saying that we don't want to dive into God's word and understand the ins and outs of it. But when we find ourselves pursuing sensationalism over substance, we always end up starving ourselves. We always end up starving ourselves. So not only is our personal development based on our diet, it's also developed through discipline. It's developed through discipline. Paul's already addressed that we're not trying to earn God's favor. So he's not talking about working into a relationship with God, but what the grace of God does in our lives. What is that discipline that he calls us to? It's godly living. God is calling us to live in a godly way. Notice what he says in verse 7b and 8. He says, rather train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. In this passage, he uses the word train, which is a word that we, we derive our word gymnastics and gymnasium and all those places where you think of working out and, and physical activity. He reminds us that godliness isn't something that we just fall into or happen upon. It's something that we are intentional about. It takes discipline in our lives. And as I look for a, a definition that would be helpful for us today as it relates to this word godliness that he talks about, author Jerry Bridges gives a, a super helpful definition for us. He says this. He says, godliness is devotion to God, which results in a life that is pleasing to him. It's devotion to God. It's love for God that results in a life that is pleasing to him. In other words, godliness is devotion in action. It's devotion in action, which makes perfect sense for us as we think about the, the day that he wrote in. Scholars believe that during this time in Ephesus, great amounts of money and time and effort were spent on developing athletes, to helping them be all that they could be. And if you think about it, it's not much different than our culture, is it? Think about the amount of money that is spent on developing physical prowess for a, for a game or for an activity. It makes sense on that level, but also makes sense in our lives too, right? Think about it for just a minute. How many of you go to the gym? I mean, if we want to like close our eyes so that nobody looks around, we can do that. But if you guys are, are you know, we're comfortable in our own skin. Uh, how many of you guys go to the gym? Or ladies, all of y'all go to the gym. Yeah, good handful. Now, how many of you have ever just gone to the gym just because? <laughs> like, <laughs> nothing better to do today. I think I'm going to go to the gym. Anybody? There's one. All right, maybe two. But pretty much nobody goes to the gym just because. There's a reason that you're going. Whether the reason is because you have to go or you're, because your, your physical health is in, in jeopardy. Maybe you're going because you're devoted to being stronger. Maybe there's some, some job that you have to do that requires you to, to grow stronger. Maybe you just want just to have the, the, the best physique out there. But there's a devotion there's a reason why you go. There's a, a compelling reason that you choose to go to the gym. That is where you act, actively work it out. You actively work out to try and accomplish that goal. The same is true as we think about our Christian lives. We have a goal. We wanna see God for all of eternity. We wanna gather with his people around his throne for all eternity. We wanna we want to know him and see him and love him. We want to grow in our devotion to him. And so we take the necessary steps to do that. We study God's word. We gather together corporately. We pray personally. We fight against sin. We share the good news of the gospel. All these actions are actions that flow from our devotion to Christ. And he wants What's the Ephesians? And he wants us to see how much greater the pursuit of godliness is than just physical training, which he says has some benefits, 
take that for what it's worth. They have benefits for the day, for today. You might have a stronger body, healthier heart, might feel better, but godliness has effects and benefits forever. He's calling us to that. He says, pursue godliness personally. But not only should you pursue it personally, Timothy, you have a responsibility for others, which leads us to our final truth for today. Pursuing gospel-centered godliness is demonstrated in faithful ministry. It's demonstrated in faithful ministry. Paul knows that Timothy isn't just responsible for his own soul, for who he is, but he's also a servant of Christ. And he has a stewardship for the people that God's entrusted to him. Here, Paul shares three things with Timothy. Three things that Timothy's life and ours should reflect. The first is this, that Timothy is to teach with authority. We see this in a few verses in 1 Timothy chapter four. He says, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a faithful servant or a good servant of Christ Jesus. Command and teach these things until I come. Devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation and to teaching. Then he also says in verse 14, do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. If we are to truly progress and help others in godliness, to help them remain securely fastened to Christ, we must regularly spend time together in the word of God. We must find it to be our source of help and hope. The message that we proclaim is not a message that we get to decide. It's a message that God has entrusted to us. We've been given a sufficient revelation by which we can know and live a godly life. As pastors and as believers, we must regularly set these things before one another. The second thing that he helps us to see is that Timothy is to live with purity. He's to live with purity. Notice what he says in verse 12. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Now we see this oftentimes, uh, we are encouraged are directed to our next generation, that, that we are not to look down on those that are in their teenage years. Interestingly enough, Timothy's actually probably between 30 and 40 years old whenever Paul writes this to him. So it's not so much that he's really, really, really young. He's just young in comparison to Paul. And youth oftentimes has this idea of, of wildness or maybe at least not in wisdom. And so what Paul is saying to Timothy is, your, your life, your message is going to be confirmed by your life. The things that you say will be confirmed by what you do. Thomas Brooks says this, example is the most powerful rhetoric. Example, the way that we live, the way that we carry ourselves is the most powerful message. A pastor, and dare I say a Christian's most powerful witness is not just their words, it is, the gospel is. It is the evidence of God's transformation in their lives. And so if we are to silence false teachers, the evidence must be clear that the gospel-centered godliness works, that it actually affects our lives. The last thing that we see for Timothy is that he is called to persist with diligence. Notice what Paul says. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this. For by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Lastly, Paul tells Timothy, rinse and repeat. Do the same thing today, tomorrow, the next day, the next day, the next week, the next month, the next year, until God calls you home. Be stubbornly simple. This will lead to life. Don't mess with the message Dive deeper into it. Don't let up on pursuing godliness. Immerse yourself in it even more. Don't get sidetracked with the endless messages of the day. Stay gospel-centered. If, if you wanna guard your people, if you wanna guard yourself, watch your walk and your words, Timothy. Every day, wake up and watch your walk and watch your words. Keep pursuing gospel-centered godliness. In so doing, there is reward for you and for those who listen. Paul gives us these five truths. Let's not forget that we can discover godliness as we come to Christ, trusting him and him alone for salvation. We discern 
the danger of drifting by measuring every message against the truth of the gospel. We develop in godliness as we feast on the treasures of God's riches in his word, which point us back to Christ. And we demonstrate godliness as we progressively model to one another and to the world, the transforming power of the gospel. And all along the way, each and every day, we're reminded that it's all about Christ. So as we close this morning, we're going to, we're going to stand and we're going to sing. We're going to sing a song of declaration, which is going to also say, serve as a song of invitation, of declaration, because what we are going to sing is true. We're going to sing truths that we will sing for all eternity. And today we want to enjoy those truths. We want to reflect on them. We want to meditate on them. We want to find our help and hope in them. It's a song of invitation because I don't know where every one of you is today. I don't know where you are with the Lord. I don't know if you know Christ. I don't know if you're walking with him, but the Lord does. If you sense that your godliness is only skin deep, when you think about your life, it's only based on this outward facade of what I do and how good I am, and your heart is not truly captivated by King Jesus. Today is an invitation for you to surrender your life to him, to find that he is your only hope and to come to him trusting in his finished work of salvation. For others, you may have been drifting subtly towards substitutes. And today God is calling you back to return to a gospel-centered godliness, to return back to the safe harbor of God's grace. Today is a day for you to do that, to repent and to come back to him. For others, this may be just a time to delight in Jesus and what he's done. If you feel the need to speak to somebody, I'll be down front. Uh, the, the front will be open if you want to come and pray and ask God to continue to work in your heart and to strengthen you and to challenge you. Or if you just want to stand and sing, and praise God for who he is. All these are open for you today. Would you pray with me and then stand and we'll sing together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. We pray that our hearts would stay gospel-centered and that you would strengthen us to pursue Christ with our all from now into eternity. For Lord, you are supreme and great over all things. You're sufficient for us. We pray that we would find our hope and our hope in you today. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening. And we hope that God uses this message in you to transform you more into the image of Christ. If you have any questions about our church or you want to learn more about Jesus, visit our website at scottshill.org slash next steps. Till next time.